from Wine Insiders, this is Sniff, Sip, Repeat, a monthly podcast for lively discussions all about wine. In each episode, we'll be speaking with industry experts, from vineyards and tasting rooms to restaurant and retail, to give you a little inspiration for what to pour next. I'm your host, Kristen, and I've worked in the wine industry for many years now, and I'm excited to bring conversations with my peers directly to you. Are you ready? Let's take a sip. Today, we'll be discussing the South with our psalm. And by South, I mean Southern Italy. We'll pour three excellent wines and discuss their uncommon varietals. My co-host today is none other than Ferdinando Mucciarino, the resident psalm at Wine Insiders who hosts the video series Inside Wine with Ferdy. This Naples native was formerly wine director at the Michelin star-awarded Rustic Canyon Restaurant in Santa Monica and in 2019 was nominated by Wine Enthusiast Magazine for Best Wine Director of the Year. So hello, Ferdy, and welcome to the podcast. Ciao, Christine. Thank you so Ciao. much for having me. Come stai? Benissimo. I'm very well. How are you? I'm very well. I know that you're well because I know a little something about you. It's a new year, 2023, January, and I know that you just returned from a trip to your home country of Italy. So I think today we're going to talk about some Italian varietals. Yes, I just returned from uh, visiting my family, spending the Christmas and New Year's holidays in Naples, Italy. It was fantastic. We're so glad to have you back. Let's talk a little bit about Naples. If you want to locate it on the boot, I would say it's the beginning of the shin. It's the largest city in Southern Italy. We're about 7 million people in an area like a little bigger than San Francisco, but with a huge metropolitan area. And uh, for, you know, for those of you at home, like if you if you're not familiar with Naples, you've probably heard of many of the things that we're known for, like pizza, uh, the Amalfi Coast, um, uh, Sorrento, uh, the, the, the historical site of Pompeii. I wanted to ask you about Italy today, and actually Southern Italy specifically, because you have selected for us today three wines to try that all have one thing in common. They're all from Southern Italy. They're all a little bit niche, or maybe not niche, but uncommon. I'm excited to let our listeners discover these. So can you tell us a little bit about what motivated you to make today's selection of wine? It's funny that we call them niche. It implies that it's a small production, but these are actually very well known in their place of origin. And I think that's what makes them, in a way, that's what makes them niche. Because when we think of something that's niche, it's something that's specific to a subject, right? Like something small. And these grapes, although there's a lot of them um, cultivated in these areas, they are unique to these regions. And we're talking uh, Sicily, Puglia, and Campania. We have one grape from each region. We'll start with Cataratto from Sicily. Then we have two reds. We have Negramaro from Puglia and Ayanico from Campania. And uh, I'm excited to taste them with you. Before we get tasting, let's do a quick reminder to our listeners about wine from Italy in general. Winemaking in Italy has a long and storied history because it dates back to even before the Romans. Is that right? Yes, we are. Uh, funny that we start, we start in Sicily and uh, the, 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 the birth of wine mythology starts in Sicily too because uh, Dionysus, which was the Greek god of wine, was actually conceived in a in a cave in Sicily by uh, Zeus and Persephone. So, and they did 
there's a there's a, a a school of thought. This cannot be proven, of course, um, that says that vines in Italy all propagated from Sicily itself. Like the the Phoenicians were the first to arrive in Sicily, and they propagated vines throughout the rest of the uh, Italian peninsula. It could be it could be uh, a legend. But it kind of makes sense because the first traces of Italian winemaking are actually in Sicily. They're about uh, from the 8th century BC, so a very long time of uh, winemaking history there, 6,000 years. So let's start with, let me see if I've gotten the pronunciation right. Idu Catarato, IGT. So we are in Sicily. This is a grape that's cultivated um, throughout the region, but mostly in the western tip of Sicily near the famous city of uh, uh, Palermo, Trapani, and Agrigento. And uh, Cataratto in the Sicilian dialect means abbondanza, means uh, abundant. Um, and it makes, it makes a lot of sense because although this is, you know, we're calling it a niche, but this is the most planted grape in Sicily. So, and that counts for about 40% of all wines of all grapes grown in Sicily. So it's a, it's, a, it's a massively produced grape. And the reason why is that it has a big role in the, in the production of Marsala. It makes a lot of uh, table wines, uh, but it is being cultivated there for a very, very long time. Like traces of uh, cataratto seeds are present in uh, terracotta wine vessels uh, that were used for fermentation they date back to the uh, Phoenician times. You mentioned a lot just now, and one of the things you touched on is Marsala. Can you just tell our listeners who might not know what the significance of Marsala is, both for cooking and drinking? Yes, because see, I was about to say, because for most most people outside of Italy, Marsala is an ingredient in chicken Marsala or uh, <laughs> other recipes that include uh, the addition of Marsala wine. I will admit I'm one of those people who didn't know Marsala on its own merit as a wine. I thought of it only when it came to dishes. No, Marsala is a very important wine. Uh, it's one of the most historical wines of Italy. It comes from a little uh, port city that's actually near the cities that I was mentioning. It's near Palermo. It's on the coast. It's called Marsala. The city's called Marsala, which named the wine. Um, and it's a place where a wine called Vino Perpetuo, which was perpetuum wine was made. What they do there, what they used to do there is that they will add new wine to older barrels of wine and kind of keep the wine going throughout the years. So wines that were century old uh, and had that this funky, nutty aromas to it uh, until like in 1773, there was a merchant from Liverpool. His name was, uh, I believe his name was John Woodhouse. He had to stop in Marsala because of uh, bad uh, weather conditions and he had to anchor in Marsala. So he was staying in a local tavern. He tried the wine and because it was very nutty, it reminded him of wines that the British at the time were very accustomed to. They were used to drinking sherries, Madeiras and port. So he thought, oh, we can make actually a lot of money with this wine if we fortify it and start exporting it. So he kind of introduced 
fortification of wine to Marsala. So because of him, then the Marsala was became like what it is today, like fortified wine. And uh, for a little bit, there was a successful venture. They were doing well in Portugal. The, the British were doing well in Portugal because they were disciplined and they uh, could control production. It didn't work the same way in Sicily, especially <laughs> in those years, because it wasn't even Italy at the time. It was the, uh, the kingdom of the two Sicilies, and uh, it was hard to rule over a land like mm -hmm. Sicily. So the wine stayed the way it is, and there were a lot of counterfeiting wines coming from all over Sicily being labeled as Marsala. So it was really hard to control. So they stopped. But Marsala is lovely. And Cataratto is one of the grapes alongside uh, Grillo and Inzolia that are used to make this uh, kind of, we'll call it a dessert wine because mm -hmm. most people drink Marsala with desserts. But Marsala is great with uh, with hard cheeses, with, uh, you know, it's an aperitif. So Cateratto is one of the grapes in Marsala, but it's very interesting on its own and actually very quintessentially Sicilian. It's very easy to drink. So do you want to talk a little bit about the citrusy and floral notes, what it tastes like, what people can expect so people can discover it? Of course. So it, it's a wine that in appearance, it looks very, very pale. Very, it's a very pale straw color wine. The color resemblance uh, will remind you a lot of a Pinot Grigio or a Sauvignon Blanc. But in terms of the, uh, the aromas, this is a very citrusy and tropical kind of wine. It's sharp, has a lot of acidity, and it finishes with these nice uh, floral aromatics, which kind of like cuts through the, uh, the sweetness of the fruit and the tartness of the fruit, which makes this wine very versatile for wine pairing. Like think everything you could think of seafood, like from shellfish to... Uh, to sardines or uh, or more um, heavy fish fish like uh, like tuna or swordfish or uh, salmon. I particularly prefer this wine with salads and starchy salads. Like this is the perfect wine for potato salad. I don't know. It might sound funny for somebody. For some reason, I find I find that the starchiness of the potatoes with olive oil, a little bit of uh, salt and pepper, really goes well with this kind of acidity, this kind of fruit profile, I think it's a perfect, perfect pairing for that. If you are going uh, to, your, to your friend's house and you're bringing, and they are Pinot Grigio drinkers or Sancerre drinkers or Muscadet drinkers, you'll impress them with a bottle of Cataratos. It's, it's very similar and it's very fun, easy to drink. I never find a person who didn't like this one. I wish I had known you were going to say potato salad. I actually have some vegan potato salad from All About the Bread on Melrose downstairs in my kitchen. I would have brought it up here to taste during our tasting, but I'm going to test out your pairing later tonight. I really love this white wine. I'm really excited for our listeners to try it. But let's keep the party going. I think it's time to move on to the red wines. And I'm really excited to introduce everyone to Negro Amaro. So why don't I let you talk a little bit about why you chose this wine, what the varietal is, and then we can move on to talking about what it tastes like. Perfect. Uh, I love Negramaro. So let, let me just start by saying that I know I said this about the Catarato, and I will say this about the next one especially, but Negramaro, is a, it's such a, a underrated 
massively produced in this region and wonderful wine, and I'll, I'll tell you why. So Negramaro comes from Puglia. We are on the stiletto part of the boot, and right at the tip of it is a sub-region called Salento, and Negramaro is the key red grape varietal of this region. Um, this is another, this is a native grape of Apuya, and it's another one of those ancient grape varietals. This has been grown there since Greek time. In fact, the funny thing about the name, so if you speak a little Italian and you know about other grape varietals of Italy like Amarone, you say Negro Amaro, it's dark and bitter because Amaro means bitter. Uh, but that's actually not true. That's a misconception that uh, for Italian winemakers, they let it slide because, you know, Amarone sells a lot, Negramaro will follow, will follow suit and sell a lot of wine, but that's actually not the reason why. But I, as an Italian, I love knowing about the roots of these <laughs> words. And I discovered this a while back uh, that this is actually the union of a Latin and a Greek word because in uh, of several centuries ago, in Puglia, both languages were spoken because it was part of the Roman Empire. So they spoke Latin, but there was a huge Greek influence. So they also spoke Greek. So they had this language that was called Greco. There was a, a perfect, almost like a Spanglish, right? Mm -hmm. Of the uh, of both languages. And this is the fusion of two words for dark. The Latin word is nigrum, and the uh, Greek word is mavro. And the Puyan dialect turned that into nigrumavru. And then in Italian, you say negramaro, which is basically like dark, dark. And that refers to these grapes, because if you see this, uh, these bunches, they're actually uh, super dark in color. And they make these wines that are fruity, like berry-like, like tart berries. It's dark very, fruit very too, dark isn't fruit. it? I, I get like a note of like the sort of blacker side of fruits, so, you know, sort of like a... You do. You maybe get, not a blueberry, get, but blackberry, but that kind of... Blackberry, like prunes. Yeah. Um, like very dark fruited. And then the, the, the finish is very herbaceous. It's it's another one that's easy to drink, very approachable. We can call it velvety, but it's very uh, it's not meager. You mentioned that Salento is the stiletto of the boot of Italy, and mm -hmm. you mentioned the Greek influence. It's you know obviously Italy is on the Mediterranean, but also that sort of side that's the Adriatic. What does that location? change about this wine that you won't get somewhere else? Like what about the climate or the area is unique? I would say, so this wine is definitely influenced by Mediterranean climate. So it's it's hot and humid during the summer. It's temperate during the winter. It's never too cold there. But uh, Negramaro tends to grow better on high altitude. So most of the quality Negramaro vineyards, they're all on mountaintops. Uh, and that closeness to the scorching sun makes for this grape to 
uh, it almost like you it needs to protect it protect itself so it develops this thick skin and that translates into more phenolics like more tannins more uh, more uh, complexity of flavors and you'll smell it in this wine like this wine has a lot an array of different fruits and then this lovely uh herbaceous finish almost like of a basil sage uh bay leaf delicious when, it smells like italian food when you mention the thick skin and the tannins and some of that it makes me think it's going to be full-bodied but this isn't really a super bold wine is it it's i would say this is more of a medium-bodied wine. right definitely okay. on a it medium tastes, body it wine. doesn't taste full it tastes a little bit more medium okay Mm -hmm. And it's it's a lower alcohol wine. It doesn't develop a lot of sugars, uh, so it does not translate into those big fifteen percent reds that are more typical to a, a warmer, much much warmer climate. And so, for our listeners, uh, there are they might be familiar with something similar to this wine. I would say the closest thing to Negramado in the, in the more, in the broader wine world would be Cabernet Franc. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So medium bodied, fruity with the herbaceous or vegetal finish. This will be uh, the closest thing. In fact, like this is, this is the wine on a blind taste, you'll confuse for Cabernet Franc, sometimes for a fuller bodied Gamay, maybe a Gamay that's not made in a carbonic, maceration style but lovely i love this is okay let's talk pairings with this yes let's talk pairings i like this with salty briny tomatoey um uh, uh spicy also like puttanesca for example like a nice puttanesca sauce with black olives, green olives, capers i'm so uh, glad you just said black olives i was actually going to go for a black olive hollow loaf because Ooh. it's Friday Shabbat and I'm going to see a friend later. And I, I was just going to say black olives. You know, it's funny that you met. It's funny that you mentioned that because back, back when I first moved to the States, Trader Joe's used to have this, this bread that was called Pugliese bread. And it was a loaf of bread with baked with Kalamata olives in it, which is a very typical style of bread that they make in Puglia. But this is actually like, it, it's very reminiscent of those flavors. Sometimes Trader Joe's really gets it right. They do. <laughs> that yeah, was a plug. Free, free plug for Trader Joe's. <laughs> Please send me some Pugliese free... bread. Trader Joe's executives, if you're listening, we need the Pugliese <laughs> bread back. <laughs> this segment sponsored, unknown to them, by Trader Joe's. Yeah, I do not celebrate Shabbat myself, but I'm often invited to a friend's house and her mom always has this sort of freshly made black olive challah bread that is just amazing. And I think what in my mind I'm thinking is the same as you, savory, but like almost like needs bread. So maybe even a pizza with black olives. Like I could do pizza with black olives. This is total pizza wine. Total. Yeah. yeah. Total. I feel and like even like the tart fruit marries the char on the pizza crust yeah and for people listening who don't like pizza i'm sure there's a handful of them out there and i don't understand you one bit but i know that sometimes people think pizza is not sophisticated and they don't understand that kind of pairing 
let's get into it because pizza is amazing in that it's got that tomato, right? Which is like the sort mm-hmm. of acid of the tomato. It's got the cheese. It's got the, depending on what kind of crust you do. I love a pizza pairing. Like I love to hear about a pizza pairing because I think it says a lot about that wine. Like this wine is delicious and it's going to go and bring all those flavors together. Italian food is very acid forward. Like no matter no matter what it's being cooked, there's always it's either there's either lemon or tomato sauce. Like there That's has to be that top of acid. So in in wine pairings, the acid of the wine must be always superior of the wine of the acid in the food in order to not be overpowered. Then I, I'm throwing I'm throwing out like pairing pairing tips. Uh, when it comes to acid and sweetness, if you're if you if you're the, eating something with acid, the wine must have more acid than the food. And if you're drinking something, if you're drinking, if you're tasting something sweet, if you make a dessert, then the sweetness of the wine must be superior. Otherwise, the wine disappears because food stays. The taste of food stays longer on your palate than something that's liquid. So you want that acid to, to win. You want the wine and the acid in the wine to win over the acid in the food so that it cleanses your palate and makes you salivate for more. So Italian wine, so just to recap, has always a ton of acid. So I'm, I've got a question for you as a wine director. If you go out to dinner and you see a Negromato on a wine list, what does that tell you about the Somme and the wine director? I would assume most people wouldn't know what this wine is at first glance. So what makes you put it on a wine list? First off, if I see it on a wine list, especially by the glass, and it's not an Italian restaurant, I'm definitely impressed um, just because of the boldness of the choice. Like if you choose an obscure grape, it means it means that you as a Somme, and your staff, because you have to train your staff, um, you like to talk about wines with your tables. Because, uh, you know, it's easy It's easy to put an obscure grape on the menu and just have it, uh, you know, randomly selected by somebody. But to me, that defeats the whole purpose of even being there as a sommelier or a server. Um, you want to talk about those obscure grapes. So when I see this kind of grapes on a menu, it makes me think, okay, the, the staff likes to talk about wine because that question is going to come out. Like, oh, what does Negramato taste like? And here's the ability of the psalm or whoever's serving the table to just explain that grape to them. It's a good talking point. We really love working with Piagergio Castellani, who brings us this wine under his Larca brand. And their mission with that brand is to introduce unknown varietals of Italian origin to everyone. And I'm just so happy that we have this in our collection. So let's round out this discussion with one last grape that I know you have a personal connection to, Alianico. So I'm going to let you introduce this wine and why you chose it and tell our listeners a little bit about the backstory I know about you and your grandpa. Yes, as I pour myself a giant glass of Ionico, <laughs> I, uh, so I, yes, you're right. Can we, can we do a, a toast before we get started? To your yes, cheers. Little toast for Ferdi's nonno. Let's talk about Ionico. Also, also named Ferdinando, just like me. Oh, um, really? I mean, I'm named I'm yes. named after him, not him after me, of course. Um, Your namesake. 
So my uh, my grandpa was an amateur. Let's let's just talk, let's just say it this way. He was an amateur winemaker. He used to make wine for uh, friends and family and a handful of small restaurants in the area. And he used to make a Yannico based reds. So it were so my uh, my first memories of wine. The first wines I've tasted were all Ayanico. I mean, I was born and raised in Naples, and Ayanico is the grape of Campania. So for I'm I'm very attached to Ayanico. Like I have to be biased. Like for me, and you say like, oh, what wines do you pair with a salad? If I have a choice, it would be Ayanico. Like I pair Ayanico with everything. I love this grape. But this is a very important grape, like not just for Italy and not just for, for Southern Italy in particular, but if you're a wine, a wine scholar or a wine lover, you owe this grape so much more than just the respect of uh, understanding that it makes great wines. This grape is the grape that started a whole movement of trying to make perfect wines in a way. Like the, the sophistication of winemaking started with the Romans. The Romans were the first to really put an effort into uh, canopy management, um, the, the selection of, selection of fermenting vessels, um, blending percentages, aging potential, and their wines are all classified. Like we have records of the wines that they liked the most and their most precious wine was called Falernum. Um, and Falernum is a Yannico that was grown on the Falerno area of Campania, which is a uh, northern, north of Naples. It's a Mount, um, Mount Falernus, right? Is that correct? Mount, Mount Falernus, exactly. Okay. Was, I uh, am a huge fan of Stoicism and Marcus Aurelius, and he talks about this wine. I mean, exactly, you cannot and get more epic than that. There's, there's several, there's several, uh, there's several like historical references to uh, to Ayanico. So the 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 most important that I'm going to mention is that if you what what we base our wine taste on is you know people like us, for example, like we're we're reviewing this wine, and our listeners are going to maybe get curious and they want to try Cataratto, they want to try Negramado, but we based our choices sometimes on reviews. Um, and the first time a wine was reviewed by Vintage, it was an Ionico wine. So, and it's legendary. It's the 121 BC Vintage. So I mean, think about, think about that's this. That's crazy. Like, it is no exaggeration. Once, In my research, I saw this is the wine of like poets and Roman senators. I mean, this is, so, this is the end all be all. So, like, I feel like everyone listening has to try this. So we know for a fact, we know for a fact, because Pliny the Elder wrote this in 49 AD. So look at the gap in time, like 121 BC, he writes about this in 49 AD because um, they say that Julius Caesar was drinking this wine when was 200 year, almost 200 years old after conquering Spain in 49 AD. And Pliny the Elder writes, the 121 BC vintage was spectacular on on the accounting of having aged 107 years and still being the greatest the greatest I mean, wine ever made. We know that prior to that, 
Caligula and Nero also had this wine um, when it was about 100 years old. I find it so interesting that they aged wine back then. And everyone looks to people like Robert Parker and Jancis Robinson. And here we have uh, Pliny the Elder writing about this wine. You just, exactly. you, you can't get a better review than that. That's fantastic. The first, the first ever wine, uh, wine influencer, Pliny the Elder. He gave it five stars, I bet. I bet. <laughs> five I omegas. Think... What do you get? What do you give if you're in ancient Rome? I don't know. You give five, uh, five cisterciums. <laughs> Probably. I'm, get, I'm getting so enthusiastic about this and I feel like we're hyping it so much. So maybe I should let you talk about the flavor notes. But I, I love, thank you for bringing so much history to the podcast because I think it does oh. actually help you with the experience of tasting these wines to understand the backstory. No, you're very welcome. I want one more thing I'm going to mention because this is something that um, in uh, when you when you Google Ayaniko in, uh, in, in, in your uh, English speaking Google search will always tell you that Ayaniko comes from the word Hellenic, which means from the Greek peninsula, uh, which is not true. Ayaniko is a native of Campania. Yes, it was grown and cultivated by the Greeks because that area uh, was not Roman to begin with. Like that area was founded and um, um, populated by Greek people way before the Romans. But the word ayaniko comes from the Greek word aiokenixos, which means uh, a wine without sugar, which makes a lot of sense because these wines are very dry. They're always on a drier side. So yeah, let's taste it together. Um, needless to say, like I'm going to love this wine. <laughs> but... I have had this wine before. I remember it having a rustic vibe. I don't know if I'm right in thinking that, but it is. It is. It's very dusty. Yannico always, uh, it always had that quality of older fruit, always dried, desiccated fruits. So you you won't smell fresh berries in, in an Yannico, especially if it's aged in barrel, because it is a grape with a lot, a lot of tannins. So those tannins they need to be tamed by prolonged aging in either barrels or um, or even extended aging in stainless steel just to I, tame those tannins is this a hard grape to cultivate some grapes like pinot noir are harder in terms of yield and growing conditions but is this a pretty sturdy grape like cabernet it is uh it, it's not a high yielding grape like cabernet sauvignon so it doesn't uh it doesn't it doesn't grow as easily as Cabernet, but it's not susceptible to a lot of vine diseases. So it's not a it's not it's not tremendously complicated. It just has a very slow ripening uh, process. So it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't massively produce wines, but uh, it produces a lot of quality. So you have red and blue fruits on this, more desiccated. To me, like the benchmark of Ayanico is like dried figs, dried prunes. I've heard it ra called raisinated mm -hmm. when you get that fruity taste that is a little denser. I definitely can taste that. The the way I see it, like I always uh, I always have this this picture in my head. Like maybe maybe this will uh this will now stick into 
our listeners' uh, uh, vision of Ayanico. When I think of Ayanico, I think of myself opening up the doors of a very old, old church uh, that's dusty everywhere and find that raisin that's just being left on a wooden bench. <laughs> and it's a mixture of like fruit, dust, incense, oldness, like a little moldy. Uh, and for some, for some, this could sound like, oh, this sounds disgusting. But really, if you're if you're been to uh, if you've been to Naples and uh, you're walking to one of our <laughs> old churches, it kind of will give you that that feeling. And uh, I mean, Ayanico always brings back memories for me. Uh, uh, Ayanico is, is a wine that we drink in special occasions. So I started drinking Ayanico before I had memories of being alive because my grandpa would always uh, have us try the wines, especially if it were his wines. But he would always say, like, oh, you, you save this, uh, the Taurasi, which is the DOCG of Ayanico, like Christmas Day or uh, New Year's Eve Day. So it was always a special occasion to drink a good Ayanico. So I always associate that with very very good memories like very memories of having my entire family over for dinner uh my my dad my grandpa like being very uh proud and excited over my bottles of ionico so it's it's a special wine i definitely agree that this wine evokes for me the idea of what you see in an italian film when you have the family eating dinner al fresco and there's meat on the table i assume when we start talking about pairing, even though neither one of us eats meat, you'll mention it, right? Because this does strike me oh, as yeah. the kind of wine you have on the table when you're having the big family feast and there's always going to be a little bit of meat. Yeah, this is, uh, this is the perfect pairing for Sunday sauce. Like what we yeah. called, what we call ragu alla napoletana, which is, you know, meats stewed in tomato sauce for like, it starts on a Friday and it finishes on a Sunday. That's that's the kind of uh, with uh, with thick cut pasta. This is what you wanna. This is what you wanna have. When I was a kid, um, my grandpa used to live in the countryside outside of Naples, and he used to have trees beside you know the grapes. He used to have trees of figs and hazelnuts. And uh, uh, the uh, I would say that the the the, I, the perfect pairing for me is a dried fig stuffed with fresh hazelnuts and a glass of Ayanico from a regular cup, not from a wine glass, like from a regular cup. And uh, that was to me like what brought, what brings, like I smell it in the wine and I'll taste it when I eat figs and uh, hazelnuts. This wine makes me just want to have dinner al fresco because I think when you smell it and you taste it, you smell and you taste the terroir. I went on vacation to Cortona once and we did a lot of dinners outside and, and it almost felt like you could turn a Tuesday into a Sunday afternoon. You could just felt so relaxed because you just go outside, you eat dinner. And I feel like this wine is carrying me away to that place. And it feels like it has a lot of complexity of flavor and taste, but it also, it's also refreshing. And I don't know if that's, is it, the acid that makes it refreshing or how do, how do you get a red wine to taste refreshing? It tastes refreshing. In Italy, wine is, is really meant to be consumed with food. So there's always, there's always a, a specific dish in mind when you're making your wine, like a specific cuisine or a specific like regional, regional cuisine 
when you're making the wine. So even a wine like this, which is uh, which is considered like this is our biggest, this is our biggest wine, this is our biggest grape, it makes the bolder, the more, but still, like in this wine in particular, you're you're talking about 12.5% alcohol. So it is a low alcohol wine. And um, the acid is right there because if I was, I mentioned the ideal pairing for this is the Sunday sauce. It's like a meat sauce, uh, but it's still tomato based. So it's full of acid. You still need your wine to have a ton of acid to uh, balance the acid of the tomato off. You mentioned that ragu, which I'm going to assume is not the brand you... from uh, not, <laughs> not the no. brand of sauce. <laughs> For our American listeners, we're not talking about the kind in a jar. You mentioned, am I saying it correct though? It is ragu, but you mentioned the ragu Sunday sauce. However, and so is that, would you consider that to be a local cuisine where Alianico is grown? Or is there a more quintessentially uh, local dish? that that you would see this wine paired to on a menu if you went out to dinner, for example, instead of eating at home? So ragu, ragu is Neapolitan. Okay. Like ragu is like a Neapolitan sauce. Uh, you won't find it in restaurants because it is, is, a, is a, a, it's very peasantry made. Like it's, it's made with scraps and tougher kinds of cuts of meats that take the longest to cook and to become tender. So that's why it starts on a Friday night and it ends, you know, it ends on Sunday uh, afternoon when you're serving it. Uh, and uh, it's very different from, you know, a Bolognese sauce, which is more of a Northern Italian, a Northern Italian sauce. Like ragu is, is a lot heavier, is a lot more, uh, it's a lot richer. It's a lot fattier than any other meat sauces that we uh, that we make in Italy. It is as Neapolitan as it gets, okay. and it's very cultural. Like if you, uh, I mean, there's all the uh, different uh, different shades of ragu. Like if you go in Naples, it's made in a way. You go outside in the countryside, the percentages of uh, pork and beef my change like and the usage of like lard versus olive oil it is it is a, a whole uh it, it is it, it's it's a whole culture of ragu making in campania and to be clear this is not a free plug for ragu sauce <laughs> no it's not a free plug we we discourage you from buying ragu <laughs> although I'm, i might put that in the hashtag just to <laughs> um is this is would this bridal ever be used in a blend or is it always on its own? But yes, Ianico is is uh, is often blended. Is often blended. It's always the majority in a blend. Mm -hmm. Um and but there's it's all it is always cut with uh, other local grapes like Piedirosso is is most often used. Um, we grow in Campania. We grow a lot of Barbera. We grow Sangiovese, we grow Negramaro. Um, these are grapes that are usually used to, to cut the harshness of the tannins. Like sometimes if you want to release the wine a little uh, earlier, then you have to use like one of these grapes just to cut through the, uh, sometimes even uh, 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 what's the international grapes are used, 
Like you could find you could find a Yannico cut with a little bit of Merlot. Or uh, a know, Cabernet I Sauvignon. I don't really associate Merlot with Italy, but I guess it probably is grown everywhere. Oh yeah. Like international grapes are everywhere. Like you'd be surprised of the places you'll find Cabernet Sauvignon and uh and Merlot. There I would say you know, being being the most planted grapes in the world, like they're in, uh, you know, Cabernet is in six, five continents and about 35, 35 countries. So it's everywhere. And uh, it, it makes such an easy growing, uh, easy to, easy to, easy to manage grape that in small percentages, you'll find it everywhere. Hmm. And same thing for Merlot. So there's more Merlot than Cabernet, I believe, in Italy. Uh, Merlot is even easier. And Merlot, uh, Merlot is such a softer, has such a softer, pillowy, sinuous kind of flavor that really, when you're trying to tame like Italian monster grapes like Ayanico, Sagrantino, or Sangiovese, like really Merlot is a big, big help. Hmm. Okay. Is there a uh... In Tuscany, there's the Super Tuscan. Is there mm -hmm. a fancy blend that comes out of Campania or Southern Italy? What they, would people look for? It's not fancy. It's not <laughs> fancy. Um, fancy was call, the wrong word, I guess. I is there say, a known blend? Like, it's like even like, for example, like Taurasi is 100% Ayanico, but um, for, most, for most kinds, but by the law of the DOCG, you are allowed to blend in um, 15, 25, 15 to 25% of a different grape. And uh, most, in most cases, that's, that's Piedirosso. Uh, but there, there are some producers and they are outside of the OCG status um, that make the super companions. Like there's one in particular, Montevetrano does 80% Cabernet Sauvignon and 20% Ayani. So that's like exactly like a super Tuscan. And those wines are delicious. So can I call it a super companion if I get a blend with a <laughs> oh, Yannico? Yes, I'm 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 not a big fan of calling anything super Tuscan or yeah. the, 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 the the super, the uh, the suffix super doesn't really uh, appeal to me as uh, anything in particular. Because I also believe that uh, we can grow international grapes whatever we want in a way because uh if the terroir is strong enough um and the winemaker has that uh, can convey identity to a to a cabernet from campania that still tastes like a wine from campania and so be it like a grape is an ingredient like you choose, you choose your ingredients. You can make, uh, you can make the best, uh, you can make the best wine using the ingredients that you feel more comfortable with. If you feel comfortable with Cabernet, and uh, you taste it blind, and you can still say this is from Campania because it smells like the Campanian terroir, then why not? If we were going to have an imaginary vineyard, you and I are gonna open up a tasting room. What? grapes are you going to plant in our vineyard Purdy? well that's a really good question like i uh um well for me that for reds there would definitely be a because i love it 
Um, and maybe because it's the only one that I could be a little bit more knowledgeable about telling you like, oh, it's coming out good throughout the process. Uh, maybe some Piedi Rosso, because it's another one of the grapes I'm very familiar with in terms of like how to grow it. Um, I wouldn't, I love Pinot Noir, but I wouldn't dare. It's, it's just too, too complicated. Tricky. Too hard. Oh my goodness. Too hard. Not that kind of pressure. Um, then for a white, I, you, I you love, love Fiano, right? Fiano I is love your... Fiano. So yes, yeah. Fiano, Fiano is going to be my choice. Um, if we could grow, I don't know where we are in the world because we are kind of... Oh, like, good question. Where are we? Where Are we in Italy? I feel like we're in Italy. If, if, if we must be if we're growing uh, Fiano and Ayanico. Uh, they they they're grown elsewhere. There's some Ayanico in California, some in uh, in Australia. Uh, I haven't met a foreign Ayanico that I can stand by and say, "Oh, they do a really good job." <laughs> then we so we far. must we must be in Campania then. But, well, and we could have we could have many vineyards. Let's have a few. We have one in Campania what, growing Ayanico. That's why we're calling them niche. Like yes, I have I've totally. never met a. I never met a Cataratto or a Negramaro from a different side of the world that I could stand by. Although I could say like, oh, I tasted Pinot Noirs from several places. And uh, I, I think that they all perform fantastically. But some of these Italian grapes, they really are relegated to their place of origin. It's almost like they, they don't want to leave. They, uh, they just want to stay there. They're just... They just don't do well anywhere else. It's that language barrier, culture shock. They don't do well. I'm very excited for this vineyard, and we're going to have a pizza store next door. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> we'll, have a, we'll have a brick oven so we can make bread and pizza and just live the rest of our days just eating and drinking. <laughs> I'm very excited. This is my retirement plan. I'm just, I'm just going to watch the am, perfect pizza and perfect wine being made and read books in the vineyard. Although my, my <laughs> retirement plans, Kristen, I have to be honest, like I'm not planning of making wine in my, uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm more inclined to, uh, uh, let, let's, let's buy a villa on, yeah. the, on the, on the Mediterranean somewhere, like maybe Sorrento, we stay in Campania and we're just going to buy bottles of wine yes. and buy and order in food and just, have fun that way yes this sounds fantastic i think yeah, let's you know not, let's not plan to work for the rest yeah. of our days no there, there's this should be like a malfi coast should be factoring in there mm -hmm. thank you so much for walking us through these three fantastic italian wines and yeah I'm thank you very much Kristen. i always enjoy i always enjoy uh our, our chats about wine and uh being a <laughs> being a part of your podcast i'm a big fan uh, even when we go off topic, it's, you know, it's fun. It's fun to amble a little bit. Today on the podcast, we tasted three wines from Southern Italy. Idu Catarato, IGT, Larca, Negro Amora, IGT, and Cantina di Solapaca, Alianico, IGP. To try these wines and more, go to wineinsiders.com, leaders in online wine. Get better wine delivered in just days.